0: Well, we are in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. We are actually wrapping up Matthew chapter 5 this morning. And so in order to do so effectively, and I I, I say wrapping up chapter 5 specifically because we're not wrapping up um, the Sermon on the Mount. We have chapter 6 and we have chapter 7 to go. But we are wrapping up chapter 5. Normally that may not be a significant statement. I would argue in the Sermon on the Mount it is a significant statement because there is linguistically a dramatic shift that will take place, not complete shift, but there is a, a pretty dramatic linguistic shift that will take place in chapter 6 and following and we're going to have to recognize this. In other words what I'm saying is that chapter 5 is very much a block of one point. Now that one point will continue into chapter 6 and into chapter 7. However, it will be it will have other things added to the point and we'll explain that more next week. But it will it will be expanded in other words in chapter 6 and chapter 7. Uh, But at the same time, the theme that we find in chapter 5 will continue all the way through chapter 6 and chapter 7 to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of chapter 7. It is important that we remember, firstly, as we've mentioned every week, that chapter 5, actually I would argue, the entirety of, of the Sermon on the Mount cannot rightly be understood, apart from understanding Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. I know I say that every week, and you all know that. As Peter would say, I know you know these things, I just want to remind you. And so that's what I'm doing, I'm just reminding you. Chapter 4, verse 17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so his ministry, at least in Matthew, specifically with regard to this message, because it says he began to preach... Right, So we need to see chapter 5 through 7 in light of 417, which is what we've been working on so far. But I would argue in all of his messages from here to the end, we need to look at it in light of 417, because it says, from that time, this is what he began to preach. So it's crucial that we, we get that, and we think about his messages, this one being the, largely, the largest recorded one. We think about it in light of that key to help us understand it. Now, I had Tom read this morning, starting in verse 17 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 48, for a very specific reason. Because if you remember, when we were starting in, in uh, chapter 5, we looked first at what is called uh, traditionally the Beatitudes. A lot of people think that that is uh, perhaps some sort of inspired title. It is not an inspired title. It is a title, title that was given many years ago uh, I don't know when it first started, but it was given many, many years ago, probably a few centuries ago at, at earliest. I found it as early, mentioned as early as the uh, 1700s, I believe it was, uh, but it may be earlier than that. Uh, that <coughs> verses 3 through 12 has been called the Beatitudes. The emphasis has always been that I've observed anyway, except for a few exceptions, uh, most notably those few exceptions are, are some more, uh, modern theologians, Reformed theologians, who have called that into question uh, in recent years. Um, but in general, it is understood as the Sermon on the Mount, at least the section we know as the Beatitudes, verses 3 through 12, is a focus on how people who fear God ought to live, or what they ought to do, or how we ought to be, right? be attitudes. And, and we address that uh, from a different perspective. And again, as I've said most weeks, that does not mean that that Christians should not be, for example, merciful, that Christians should not hunger and thirst for righteousness, that Christians should not be peacemakers, uh, that, um, uh, that uh, Christians should not be meek, or that Christians should not mourn, or should be poor in spirit. No, certainly, certainly the scriptures can, you can argue, th- Throughout the New Testament, there are places where every one of those are talked about. In the Old Testament, they're talked about as well. Uh, but for believers in the New Testament, certainly that can be argued for as, um, as for example, or not for example, but but it could probably be argued, in fact, I don't think probably is the case, it can be argued as um, evidences of fruit of the spirit. In some cases, it is the fruit of the spirit. Meek, for example. But I would, I would argue in, in, in this text, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but in this text 3 through 12, Jesus' purpose is not to tell us primarily what we ought to do or be. What he's doing is he's preaching that the people need to repent. And what he's doing is he's explaining from verse 17 of chapter 4, these are areas you need to repent from. If you remember, we said in chapter 5, verses 3 through 12, what he's doing is he's saying this was prophesied in the Old Testament. It was prophesied that the time of blessing would come. There's no missing the point that, that Jesus' coming is called is described as he's coming in the fullness of time. What is the fullness of time? It's a time of blessing. It's a time when blessing is coming. And he comes to declare the blessing upon righteous, godly people. And that's exactly what we have in 3 through 12. He's declaring the time of blessing. And what he's in effect saying is, if you are this type of person, come forward to be blessed. The blessing time is here. But the problem is that God's standard is what? Absolute. absolute perfection. And so the view of 3 through 12 must be seen from the perspective, not how do I need to live or what do I need to do or who do I need to be. The, the thing that needs to be looked at is what's God's standard? It's not i got to try to do it. i got to try to do these things. What's God's standard again? Absolute perfection. And if you don't have absolute perfection, that means you're not going to receive the... Blessing. Instead you are going to receive the alternative from Deuteronomy, which is curse. the curse. And that's exactly what is taking place here. He's saying, let's examine the facts. It's almost like you can see, you can see this as a courtroom, and we already talked about, it. you see beyond here, he uses court and judge type of language regularly. And so you've got to view this text as almost a courtroom scene. Where he's saying, it is time for this person or these people to come forward and be blessed. And the implication is, he is the one who is bringing the blessing, right? Which makes him in a position of authority, does it not? It absolutely brings him, puts him in a position of absolute authority. He's bringing the blessing of the Father to the people. However, there is no one that can receive it because nobody measures up to absolute authority perfection, not just in every one of the categories, but in any of the categories. And so if it's true that they cannot receive the blessing, which goes back to 417, they're being called to repent, and his whole purpose is to show that they, they cannot receive the blessing, they must therefore be in a position, if they can't receive the blessing, the only position that is left. It's kind of like, it's like uh, what's that game you play as a kid where you have the chairs, you got to sit down there's always one less. What's it called? Musical chair. Musical chairs, right? Except this musical chair is different. Because there are chairs, but there's 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 two people, or twenty people, or forty people, but only one of them says blessing, and all the rest say curse. And there's one person firmly seated in the blessing chair. And who's that? Jesus is. And every other chair says what? Curse. I don't care how many times you lap the chair. You can go around those chairs a hundred times. Every time you go around and look at those chairs, every chair that's available says, Cursed. Doesn't matter what chair you sit in. You're cursed because you haven't been absolutely faithful. But Jesus, on the other hand, has maintained absolute perfection. Always. He's the only one able to sit in that chair. By the way, that should kind of sound a little bit like Revelation 5. In any case, after one through, or 3 through 12, we come into the salt uh, of the earth and light of the world. And once again, the point of, of 13 through 16 is to show, we spent several weeks on those, to show that, that, that the salt has is lost its is savor. And any, any light you had, you hid it under a, ba- uh, under a bushel, under a basket. And that shows, again, that you are not to be blessed, but you are to be cursed. And then from there, we come to 17. And I would argue 17 through 48 is one big section continuing to build on the, even though they break down to subheadings, Uh, continue to build on what he's already been talking about in 5 verse 3 through verse 16 but it's all coming out of chapter 4 verse 17 Uh, are you someone to be blessed or someone to curse no you're someone to be cursed you need to repent because you have violated the law. And he goes on, he talks about it. He starts out in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And that is exactly what he does. And by the way, if I if you forgot about what I said in 17, way back a number of weeks ago, several months ago, I think now, when he says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, the fulfilling them is the absolute perfection. He has come to absolutely fulfill them, firstly, because he is going to keep them absolutely perfectly. But fulfilling them also includes, in order to fulfill them perfectly, you still have a problem. Even if he keeps them perfectly, he did. But even if he does, there's still a problem, because man hasn't. And so there is a curse to be meted out. Correct? Correct. There is a curse that still must be meted out. And so what Jesus does in saying he has come to fulfill them, it's not just that he's kept them perfectly, and do will continue to keep them perfectly, but he will fulfill not, because he says he's come to completely fulfill the law, which means he has to take on the curse. Otherwise, they're not completely fulfilled. He must also take the curse. It's only in that that the law is completely fulfilled, because they haven't kept it. If everyone had kept it perfectly, there would not need to be any curse, right? But because man hasn't kept it perfectly, then curse must be meted out, must be dealt. And in order for it to be filled, fulfilled, it must be poured out. And in order to, in order to pour it out, Jesus stands in our place. We're going to come back to 17 through 20. At the end of the message this morning, we're going to leave that lay at this point in time. We're not going to walk our way through the rest of this. We're going to jump right down to 43. I'm going to read it again, even though Tom just read it. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's walk our way through this. This one becomes very interesting. There's been a digression at times through through verse 17, through verse 43, and we have the most dramatic digression that takes place in the text today. It's, it comes right in the very beginning. <laughs> you have heard that it was said, has, has been demonstrated up to this point in time, as being referenced the teaching of the leadership of Israel, the, uh, the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, looking back at the Ten Commandments, And then at one point, moving away from the Ten Commandments, but still presenting what the Scriptures have to say, generally speaking, sometimes very specifically, but one time it was really general, just a compilation of ideas from the Scriptures. In this text, at the culmination or conclusion of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus takes a dramatic step, or begins a dramatic declaration that is abhorrent to the Scriptures, When he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, it's important that we pause on this one because he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. Does it say that in the Old Testament? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It says it in Leviticus, it says it in Exodus, it says it in, in, in Deuteronomy, it says it in a variety of places in the Old Testament, it also con- it continues to say that in the New Testament as well, quoting the Old Testament, you shall love your neighbor, and Jesus says that right here, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, and everyone would respond by saying, amen, amen. right, even in that day, did people listen to Jesus and say, yep, Absolutely. Assuming that your neighbor is what? A good guy. Or more specifically, thinks like you do. Acts like you do. Speaks like you do. Has the same priorities you do. Has the same likes and dislikes as you do. Has the same morality that you do. Has the same goals and objectives in life that you do. That's the presumption. He goes on though and says, And hate your enemy. Now what in the world is Jesus talking about here? What Jesus is talking about here is both an informal and formal view that the people in Jesus' day had. The people taught it. That's why it says, you have heard it was said. The people, the leadership of Israel taught very strongly, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. In fact, they taught it so commonly and so boldly, even the Roman government, talked about how how odd and how strange the Jewish people were in light of this subject. Because the Jewish view that was taught formally and informally was love your neighbor, assuming that your neighbor is a fellow Jew who practiced just like you do. And everyone else was defined As what? An enemy. Now, does the little Samaritan thing start to make a little more sense? How the Jews viewed the Samaritans, for example? They hated them. Which is why Jesus used the Samaritans several times as examples. They hated them. They despised them. They looked down on them. They considered them unclean. They couldn't be around them. These are people who were half-Jewish. Think about how they would view people who were fully not-Jewish. And there's plenty of history to demonstrate that. And so the teaching was formal to the Jews. Love your your neighbor, hate your enemy, which is a total corruption of the Old Testament law. It is interesting that Jesus saves this one till last in chapter five. Now there was no chapter divisions, but certainly there's a major division between five and six. It is interesting that it concludes with this perspective at the end. Now, I said it's a, it was a formal teaching. It was also an informal teaching. In other words, what I mean by that, it was, it was just informally practiced all the time. Now, before we look down on them for informally practicing that, let us be honest. Is this not a common thread throughout humanity with regard to enemies? It's everywhere, isn't it? It's everywhere. Yeah, sure. Let me give you a great example where it shows up in Christianity all the time, verbally-wise. Someone does something really bad to someone in the church. Let's just use an example. Rusty does something really bad to Jim, whatever it may be. And Jim comes to me and says, Steve, I I need your help. My goodness, Rusty's gone off the rails. He's a mess. He said this, or he'd done this against me. And I've talked to him about it. And he refuses to change. He refuses to repent. And I say, well, let's get together. And so we all get together and I talk to Rusty. And the Lord begins to work in Rusty's life. And Rusty turns to Jim and says, Jim, will you forgive me? And the response that comes back is, I'll forgive, but I'll... See, we all know it. (laughs) We all know it. I knew it would happen that way. It is so common. We didn't have to think about it. It was right there, wasn't it? You know what that is? Hate your enemy. So that is informally, that's hate your enemy. And on top of that, when you hate your enemy, you're maintaining that enemy status, aren't you? Even if one side wants to change, you're still maintaining the status. Isn't that interesting? It's like almost like it's hardwired in us, isn't it? It's hardwired. So formally and informally, it was a universal perspective. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It is like at the very end of chapter 5, it's almost like Jesus is going down to the very core of the human dilemma. Broken relationships. Failed relationships. Like the very core. And he does what he does every step of the way. Verse 44, he says, but I say to you, and here he goes again, right? Here goes Jesus again in the judge position declaring the truth of the law and the purpose for the law and the understanding of the law, the function, the meaning of the law. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. I want to pause on this before I talk about it a little bit further. I want to ask you, Jim. I believe that the King James verse 44 is different, isn't it? What does your verse 44 say? I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and greater than that despitefully use you and So it's a much bigger verse in, in the King James than it is in the ESV or the NASB or a number of other translations. And the reason for that, if I may just explain this, and if I may just pause and give it aside this is more translation issues than anything else, But I want you to understand where that comes from, your ESV, your NAS, those type of, 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 of translations are using what would be described, generally speaking, as older manuscripts, like much more ancient manuscripts, whereas the King James uses a different family of manuscripts that are much more recent. Whereas uh, the one family is coming from like anywhere from the early 2nd century, with a few fragments, uh, all the way through to like the 14th, 15th century. Uh, The King James is typically looking at, generally speaking, 11th to 13th, 14th and 15th century, that type of time frame. There's many, many more of those manuscripts than the original way back in the day type of manuscripts. Not original, but you get my point. Um, and what it, what most people think happened because the older manuscripts have the shortened version I'll read it again it says in verse 44 um, but I say to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that's the entirety of the verse. The King James translation the manuscripts they used had a, a variety of other uh, phrases in it that, that Jim just read and it was in the Greek of these of these newer trans, uh, newer manuscripts that have been discovered. Um, and, and what most people think is that there was a combining of other gospel texts where Jesus says those things. Those, those are clearly biblical statements by Jesus. As a matter of fact, for example, they come out of Luke, and they may very well have been in the Sermon on the Mount message that Jesus gave, because in, in the Lucan message of the Sermon on the Mount, it presents those as well. So it most likely... Were the words that Jesus actually said in the? In fact, I would pretty much guarantee they are the words. Some of the words that Jesus did say in the, the Sermon on the Mount. However, Matthew in the in the older manuscripts does not have those words in it. No problem with them being there because they come elsewhere in in like uh, Luke, for example, and those type of places. But in any case, we're going to focus on just the ones that I have in the ESV uh, from the older manuscripts. If that's all right with everybody, again, the scriptures mention those other ones elsewhere. They're fine. There's nothing wrong with them. I'm just going to focus on the ones that are here. So verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So his st- statement, his first statement in interaction with what they have heard all their life. And remember, the point of him showing these contrasts, you've heard it was said, but I say to you is to show them they need to what? Repent. To repent. They need to repent. And so he says, But I say to you, love your enemies. And why does he say that? Because your enemies are also your neighbors. Neighbors. Who's my neighbor, right? I mean, that's what what, uh, the rich young ruler asked Jesus. Who's my neighbor? Well, who's your neighbor? Well, even enemies can be your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Yes, but that includes your enemies. Love your enemy. Now, I want to pause that. That does not mean, Jesus is not saying, love your your enemy, that means you need to feel good about them. We're not going to jump into our modern modern, um, um, uh, romance songs and love songs about what it means to love. When he talks here about love your enemies in verse 44, he clarifies even further, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So one of the ways in which you love your enemy, and the text in the King James adds some more pieces to the equation from other texts. One of the ways whereby you love your your enemy is to do what? Pray for them. Who are these people? Your enemies are people who, in this case, who persecute you. So he tells us real quickly, you should pray for them. Now, what is the implication about what you pray for them? Because if I hate my enemy, how am I going to pray for my enemy? No, if I hate them, I'm going to pray they die. precatory Psalms. I'm going to be praying all sorts of God, destroy them. Yeah, break their teeth, break their legs, confound them, drive them away. But That's not what he's talking about, is he? That's not even close to what he's talking about. He says, pray for those who persecute you. And especially when you look at the New Testament further uh, and at, drag those other things in that King James has, it becomes really clear the prayer for these people is what? That they would be redeemed. That they would know the truth of Jesus. That they would know the truth that their sins are, can be atoned for. Pray for them. That they will What? Yes, in its very essence, the prayer he's talking about is verse 17 of chapter 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is the primary prayer that he's talking about here? When he says, love your enemies, pray that they will understand that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Pray that they will understand that they need to repent and turn from their sin. That's the point. That's the prayer. That is the essence of the prayer that Jesus is talking about. Mm-hmm. Not pray that we would that we would be that they'd be nice to us. We we end up praying horizontal prayers of those, don't we, all the time? Is that what happens? Got an enemy? Pray that 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 God would just give me some peace in this thing. Not that they would come to repentance and. Worship of Jesus. <laughs> but I say, love your enemies. And the way you love your enemies is, in its very core essence, is Christwardly. That they would know their Redeemer. But what becomes interesting is not verse 44, verse 44 is important. Because that's not how. It's important to show the need to repent because that's not what is happening, is it? What's happening is not, I, I love this person, so I'm going to pray for them that they will know Christ and, and the obvious ramification of praying someone that they'll know Christ that they'll repent is that I'm going to go to them and call them to repentance and point them to Jesus. Right? Because it's illegitimate to pray for someone that they will repent and love Jesus if we're not going to them and doing What? Talking to them about Jesus, right? Talking to them about their sin, about the need to repent, and I find it so interesting. Even if I may, if I just show the the, the fatal flaw in all of our thinking. So often, it, even when someone sins against us, Rusty sinning against Jim, for example, in my illustration—not a real illustration, as far as I know—is it? They wouldn't say it publicly, I hope, anyway. But just for the illustration's sake, even the very essence of how we typically approach it is about what? You've sinned against me. That's where we go, isn't it? You hurt me. You lied to me. You destroyed my stuff. You offended me. We can go on and on with that one, right? But we all know it, don't we? Isn't that what we do? It's one of the things I love about Ananias and Sapphira. When Ananias and Sapphira come in, where did Peter go? He didn't say you lied against me, but you lied against the Holy Spirit. Well, did, he lie? Did, did Ananias and Sapphira lie to Peter? Of course he did. Where's Peter's focus? God. When David repented of his sin with Bathsheba and killing Bathsheba's husband, murdering Bathsheba's husband, and he prayed in Psalm 51, who did he say he sinned against? You and you he said, I've sinned against you and you only. That's a pretty radical thought, isn't it? Isn't it? That doesn't fit in my equation, how I think about things too often. I think horizontally about them. That person did that against me. Wait a second, I'm not the lawgiver. Am I? I'm not the authority, am I? I'm not the standard, am I? And as evidence, I don't get anybody to heaven, do I? No. God's a lawgiver. He's the one who people sin against. Certainly, I was the means to that, if it was against me. But ultimately, he sinned against God. She sinned against God. But when we get all worked up, where are we focused? This is what you did against me we miss what? The only thing that really brings redemption. The only one who really brings redemption. Christ. So if we're praying for someone, praying for our enemy, even someone who's persecuting us, the conversation by definition, by necessity, should be what? The conversation with that person should be about, about how they offended God. And how they need forgiveness from God, they need a redeemer. But that's not where we go. It's just like it's hardwired into us again, isn't it? He's, so what is he saying to them? But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking to them about something they never are. He's talking about something that's totally foreign to them. He's talking to them about something they've never, ever seen in themselves. Their condemnation is complete. But what gets really interesting is verse 45. And I've, heard, I've read and heard many theologians and pastors do, do little dances around this text. But we need to hear the text for what it says. Verse 45. It's a continuation. I'm going to start at the 44 again. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Did you listen to that? Let me read it again. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, if that doesn't knock your socks off, what Jesus just said in the Sermon on the Mount, nothing will. What Jesus just declared was a full broadside that destroys everything. Now, a lot of pastors will play games, and a lot of theologians will play games. I'm using those words very specifically with this, and they will say that the text really means so that you will evidence that you are sons of the of your father, so that you will demonstrate that you are sons of your father, so that you will show that you are sons of your father. So that it will be clear that you are sons of your father. That's not what the text says. Not in English, not in Greek. It does not say that. If we're going to be as literal as possible, what it says is, verse 45, so that you may become sons of your father. That's literally what it means. Now some will say, whoa, back up the horses, Steve. That sounds like work salvation, doesn't it? Yep. Yep. Certainly does, doesn't it? You need to what? Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may become sons of your father. Sounds pretty much like work salvation. I would submit to you, it is. It absolutely is. Do this, and you'll become son of your father. Implication if you don't do that, what? You won't become, you won't become son to your father. That's the point. Now, what's God's standard again? Absolute perfection. Absolute perfection. So, this is not a moment in time you got to do this so that you can become son of the father, right? Absolute perfection means you got to do it how, how much? All the time. From the time you were born to the time you die, Without fail ever. In the heart as well as in the action. Are you done yet? Are you undone? Hope so. Because what Jesus just said, if you absolutely perfectly in your heart and in your actions love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you you will be saved that's what he said do you get the sense we're all cursed do you get the the clear resounding ring of curse do you hear it there because none of us have have we I, I would submit to you that probably none of us have ever once did this perfectly, have we? Forget about our whole life. Maybe for a few seconds. Microseconds, maybe. We have never done this. Because even the best of our days, best of our activities, are always laden with what? Sin. Sin. And yeah, we're doomed. The call is to repent, 4.17. And he says here, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may become sons of your father who's in heaven. And the implication very strongly is if you don't do that, you can't be sons of your father who's in heaven. Oh, you weren't just born? (laughs) You don't have any hope. You weren't just born, which means that you have a lifetime of doing what? Hating your enemies and not praying for those who persecute you. As well as we can add in the things that the King James says, Jim. So as a result, all the hearers of Jesus' message in this culminating of chapter 5 are clearly what? Doomed to receive the curse. There are no exceptions. He goes on in verse 45. We're going to get back to forty-five, the beginning of verse 45 again, but he goes on and he explains. For he, and the he here is who? God. God. For he makes the son, his son, to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. What does he do? He says He says here at a basic level I want to be very careful in my words here. At a basic level, now I'll, I'll explain why I say that. What I'm saying, on a basic level, he is demonstrating love. Is he not? Yes. The blessing is the, the the loving blessing is pouring out to who? Just 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 the saved? No. The loving blessing is pouring out to the the just and the unjust. It's pouring out to the. Um, uh, to the evil and the good, and it is interesting, by the way, if I may just throw this out here. There is no definite articles in the in the Greek here. In the in the English, it says he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The word "the" it's called definite article. There are no definite articles in in, in this text. In the Greek, there is no indefinite article. It's just the absence of the definite article. And you. so technically, you could, if, if in the Greek, excuse me for this, Jim, but in the Greek, if, if there is no definite article, it can legitimately be included. It does not have to be. There's a variety of reasons why they do that. But if the definite article is there, in the Greek, it must be understood to be there. And you use it then. Does that make sense? So in this case, there is no definite article. So it's just the word. So in other words, it, literally it would read verse 45 end of it so he makes his son to rise on evil and on good and sends rain on just and unjust and the reason why he the, the uh, Matthew does not include the definite article there is because the idea he wants to understand that that it, that the unjust is absolute on evil is absolutely evil just is is absolutely just. Good is absolutely good. Now that makes the text really striking. Because when Jesus is speaking this, how many good or just people are on the earth? What? No, just one, right? Just (laughs) Jesus, correct? He's the only good one. You're right though, Jim. Except for Jesus, there's none, right? Right? Jesus is good. Jesus is just. Everyone else in this whole entire argument of chapter 5 is what? Just or unjust? Just. They're all unjust. They're good or evil. Which one? Evil. evil. <clears throat> or to quote Noah's day, they were evil continually. Correct? That's how it's described. The time, time of Mount Noah it was no different than any other time. <laughs> They're evil continually. Uh, type of evil. Evil may be different from era to era. But they're evil continually. He causes the... And we quote these passages out of t- context all the time. He causes the rain to fall on the, on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Or the just and the unjust. It's like... No, he causes the rain to fall on the unjust. <laughs> he causes the sun to shine on, on the good and the evil. Uh, no, he causes the sun to shine the evil. Right? Naturally, that's the case, isn't it? Jesus is the only righteous one, the only just one. The only good one. And when he declares that here. Remember, his standard absolute perfection. We cannot corrupt his understanding of absolute perfection here. So good, from God's perspective, is who? Jesus. End of story. Period. Just is who? Jesus. Period. End of story. And the only way that ever changes is because wrath being poured out on Jesus. And then Jesus gives his righteousness to some. Make sense? But here he's talking about this general love demonstrated. My goodness, you think about it. Do these people that Jesus is speaking to, they deserve to be there. They deserve to hear the Redeemer speak. They deserve to hear Christ, the Messiah, in their presence. Do they deserve Emmanuel, God with us? Do they? No. If God had not been long suffering, would there be anybody there on the hillside outside of Galilee that day? There would have been nobody. There would have been nobody. Was. And they had had ears. At least physically. I heard what Jesus was saying. Mercy. Isn't it? Long suffering. It's evident there. And Jesus, by even speaking to them who He knows their hearts, right? He knows in a few years they're going to do what? They're going to kill Him. They're going to hate him and despise him and reject him. He's talking to his future persecutors. Is he not? The disciples are there as well. You're right. But I'm I'm being general here. Generally speaking, he's speaking to who? His future persecutors. Many of them. We must not miss the point when he's on the cross, he does what? Out of the Several things he says. One of his his things he says is what? A prayer. And how does Jesus pray on the cross? Father, forgive forgive them. them. They know not what they do. Love your enemies. Right? It's stunning to realize what's going on here. And there was almost three years later that these people have heard him speak. His disciples, for the most part, have left him, right? On the tree? John's the only one there. Everybody else has left him? Everybody else is crying out, persecute him? Or, I'm sorry, crucify him? And he demonstrates once again that he is just and good. And he loves that. Now, certainly there is, we can't miss Romans says, Jacob, if I love Esau, if I hate it. We certainly want to bring that that equation into it as well. There's one that he has a covenant with and one he doesn't, right? <clears throat> he has his covenantal people and he has other people who are condemned. There's no question we cannot miss that. I don't want to get into the weeds on that, but but in a general way, we have a, a love here going on. In any case, moving on to verse 46, Jesus continues and says, <clears throat> For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? What's the value of that? If Ken and I think a lot alike, and we think everything the same way, and we love hanging out, we love doing the same things, we love fishing and hunting, and we love whatever, we enjoy the same kind of stuff, and we just kind of connect, well, cost me anything to love Ken? It doesn't cost anything, right? On the other hand, if Ken hates me and does things to persecute me, make my life miserable, is that does that cost me anything to love him? <coughs> yeah. It's the roof, isn't it? And it's exactly what Jesus is saying here. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Nothing. There's nothing in that. No value to that. He goes on and he says, Do not even the tax collectors do the same? I mean, the tax collectors, the worst of the group, from the common perspective of that day, the tax collectors were the worst of the group, the most despised of all the Jews were the tax collectors. Why? Because twofold. Number one, because they were working with the Romans, and the Jews hated the Romans. And number two, they were ripping off all their fellow Jews because they were required to charge a certain amount by the Roman government. They could charge whatever else they could get away with, and for and that was all for their own pocket. And so they were they were I mean it was like it was like the most crazy mafia you have ever seen. They were universally despised by the Jews, even though they were fellow, fellow Jews. They were hated, and so Jesus goes out of his way to bring. The despised ones. The ones that everyone should be, according to the scriptures, according to the law of God, should love. But they're all hating them. Right? And he says says basically to them, if you love those who are just like you, then you're just like who? The very people you just absolutely despise. What did he just do? He just says the people you despise and you are exactly what? The same. The same. You despise them because they th- you think they are treating you so poorly, they, and they were, that they're ripping you off, and they were. You despise them. You hate them. You miss the whole point that you are no different. They act the same way you do. You're just like them. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers... <clears throat> What, are, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And when he talks about Gentiles, he's, not, he's, he's being more derogatory than you think because he's playing into their views of Gentiles. They view the Gentiles as vastly inferior to themselves. Vastly inferior. Like, I touch them, I'm unclean. They're very much lower, lower. Lower every way. You could, you, could, you could do the same, you could have the same understanding if you, go, if you know the US history, you can travel back into slavery days and segregation and all the rest. And, and the hatred that some people had for, for black people, for example, get the idea. You know, unclean, I don't want to touch someone who will be around them. You know, I remember growing up in, in Oak Park, Illinois. <clears throat> and uh, next door to us was Cicero, Illinois. And Cicero was an interesting place. Because out of all the suburbs, we were, we were right next to Chicago, what was called the Austin District. If you ever, By the way, if you ever watch um, uh, the news and you hear them talk about the shootings in Chicago, and they talk about, well, there's two places in Chicago that the shootings take place, either in the Austin District or it's the South Side. I live three short blocks away from the Austin District, just to give you a perspective where I came from. Um, and it was bad then too, <laughs> really bad. But we were, we, were, we were desegregated, not by law, but there were black people and white people living in the same neighborhood in Oak Park. And the other suburbs right in that area were the same way, except for Cicero. In Cicero, there were no black people living there. None. It's interesting. And every time a black person would buy a house and, and, and try to move in, before they even moved in, guess what happened to the house? It burned to the ground. And guess what the fire department would do? They'd let it burn. They'd protect the other homes around it. They'd let that baby burn to the ground. And, and about the only people who ever killed in Cicero were black people. It was amazing. Even as a kid, I was like, something's wrong there. Something doesn't pass the sniff test there. Once I got a little older, I started you know, putting two and two together and come up with four. But before then, I just couldn't figure it out. But the point is, the people who lived in Cicero had a view of these other people, and the view of the other people were what? Good or bad? They viewed these other people as pollutants, as pollution that we cannot have in our midst. We cannot. And we will do everything we can not to be untainted by them. That was the view. I'm just using that as an illustration. That was the way the Jews viewed viewed the Gentiles. And what does Jesus say? For if you love those who love you, I'm sorry, um, and if you greet only your brothers, verse 47, what are you doing more than others? What is he referring to? If you greet people, when he says if you greet people who greet you only, that means you're greeting people who are just like You. You identify with them. You have all the, the the visual and auditory clues that they're just like you, and so you're comfortable around them. And the greeting is is not a greeting like "Hey, how you doing." It is a much more uh, a, a, an intense greeting that usually involved uh, kisses on the cheek. It involved a hug. It involved oftentimes. Spending time together, inviting over to the home, it involved a variety of things. The greeting was very significant. But if you're greeting only those, uh, only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles do the same. The Gentiles greet the Gentiles the same way. In other words, the idea is everybody does what? Everybody greets everybody who's just like them the same way. We're very comfortable, welcome, aren't we? If I may use the illustration politically today. I'm using it because it's the world we live in. If you think like I do politically, then we can be good buddies, right? Is that not common today? But if you don't think like I do politically, what? It will not be good buddies. What's that? It will not be good buddies. It oftentimes will be a war, verbal, and sometimes even worse than that, right? And so we know it's common, right? Everybody greets people just like them. Everybody loves hanging around with people just like them. But when it comes to conflict, we don't want anything to do with that. And he's, what he's saying is, what good is that? Even the Gentiles, everybody's the same. And then he wraps it all up in verse 48 and drives, if I may say it this way, he drives the final nail into the coffin. And I find most... Most uh, uh, theologians that have written on the text in the last uh, centuries, a couple centuries, have missed this point. And I think it's, it says and a lot of the older, way, way back in the day, people got it right. But today, oftentimes they don't. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. A clear, simple statement. Jesus is wrapping up all of chapter 5 with his standard of what? Absolute perfection. We cannot miss it. I, I read and hear many people say, Well, when he says perfect, you, you must therefore, you, you therefore must be perfect. He is saying you must be mature or striving or reaching toward. That's not what he says. What Jesus says here is plain, it is simple, it's probably one of the most plain statements in the entire chapter. You, therefore, must be perfect. And then he explains what he means by perfect. As, or just as, most literally, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. We certainly, if we're going to change the first perfect to mature, then it would say, you, therefore, must be mature as your heavenly Father is mature. Does that make sense? You must be striving for perfection as your Heavenly Father is striving for perfection. Does that make any sense at any level? That's heresy. Yeah, that's heresy. You are absolutely correct. <clears throat> now, what Jesus does when he wraps up chapter 5, he says, you therefore, and the word therefore is saying in culmination or in a final drawing together of everything I've just said in chapter 5. Everything I've said in chapter 5, this is the statement in light of everything else I've said. Let me sum it all up for you and say this. What I've been saying all along is you must be perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect. Does he really mean that? Go back to chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20 is a setup for verse 48. That's what it is. You think the people who are closest to perfection are the scribes and the Pharisees. Your righteousness better be better than them, or what? Or what? You're never going to get into the kingdom of heaven. You're never going to see it. You're only going to see one other place, and that's hell. It's exactly what he's saying. And then he clarifies that and brings it into stark contrast in verse 48. Therefore, you, hearer of the text, you, reader of the text, understand something. You, therefore, must be perfect. Just as... Your heavenly Father is perfect. That is your only hope. That's what he's saying up to this point. Only hope. That's it. We're done. Unless you can do works from the moment you are born to the moment you die that are absolutely perfect, you're doomed. You have no hope. Steve Lawson, uh, a, a professor, I believe he's out at Lancaster Bible College. <clears throat> I could be wrong on that, though, I? I think, at least he was, I think he still is, I'm not sure about that. He says, do work save? He said, yep, absolutely. Just not your works, just not yours. Your works do not save, but works do save. But it's got to be absolute perfection works. No failure. No, missed it by that much. Absolute perfection, always. Those type of works save. And that's the point Jesus is driving towards in chapter five. If that's not you... Then, what is left for you is one thing and one thing only. What is left for me is one thing and one thing only, and that is the curse, the wrath of God, eternal separation from God. That is the only option and the only hope. Ah, but let's jump back to verse 17. Jesus said, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come back to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What did we say when we started out? The entirety of the law includes the curse. It does. The standard is absolute perfection in order to be blessed. None have ever matched that. I would submit to you that none have ever even gotten close. What did Paul say? All those things I did before, I count them, but done. That I gained Christ. He came to fulfill them. And so he became a curse for you and I. He absorbed the wrath that was belong that belonged to you and me. Our only hope is that in his fulfilling the law, that that thing we call theologically speaking imputation, that that absolute twofold transaction would take place. On the one hand, that he would take on our sin and the wrath that belongs to us. And and then he would place us in his place. And he would give us his righteousness. Because it's only his righteousness that will do what for us? It's only his righteousness that will make us what? Verse 48. Correct? It's only when we have his righteousness that we are perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And we are viewed by his righteousness. And the judgment day, when he says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the kingdom I prepared for you. That well done, good and faithful servant ultimately is not about all the paltry, fitful, stutter stepping works that we have done. Which we will do if we're saved, right? Because the spirits at work in us. We will do them. And God will somehow be pleased with them. But it's all, according to Philippians chapter 3, about a righteousness that's not our own. All those paltry works, those fitful works, those stutter-stepping works that we do, because we have been loved by and are being loved by Jesus. And as a result, we respond to his love because he has made us alive in him. And we've been grafted into the vine. At the end of the day, and he views us at the judgment seat he will view us according to the righteousness we've been given, that alien righteousness, which is the only reason why we will be seen as being able to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. It is the only when we have that righteousness that is greater than the scribes and Pharisees that will ever enter the kingdom of heaven. <coughs> Jesus call in Matthew chapter 5 is to repent and believe. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if we want entrance into the kingdom of heaven, the only way is to Christ. That's it. Works count, but they're Christ works. They count. They make all the difference. Either we're in Christ or we are not. And for those of us who are believers, we said in the past, we still ought to repent and recognize, recognize our desperate need for him today and that we still need the gospel today. We still need his grace and mercy today because in my best of my days, best of my activities, best of my thoughts, best of my words, it's still laden with sin and it's not perfect. And it never will be the sight of glory. today, this moment. We sing a song every hour I need you, right? But really it's every moment. Every moment I need him. Every moment I need his mercy. Every moment I need his righteousness. Because without his righteousness, I have nothing. I have nothing but wrath. Praise the Lord, he says he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Amen? His love... Is not dependent upon us being absolutely perfect in our activities, in our words, in our thoughts, is it? Even when we're unfaithful, He remains faithful. Amen? We have much to rejoice over. But He who perseveres to the end will be saved, too. And we are called to serve Him and glorify Him. We are called to worship Him. And if we're truly saved, what's going to happen? We will serve and we will worship. And we'll glorify Him, won't we? Because the Spirit is at work in us, and He's given us a new heart. And He bears witness with us. Does He not? So, we're going to come to the table in just a moment. Let me encourage you to come to the table. I hope that today's message opens our eyes a little bit more to see how much undeserving we are. Or how undeserving we are. How absolutely condemned we deserve And just like it was mercy that Jesus was even there along the Sea of Galilee, in the same way, it was just God's mercy that Jesus was there on the road to Damascus for Saul. And it's just God's mercy that he called you, that he chose you, that he drew you, that he redeemed you. That's how great his love is. That he went to the cross in your place and he put you in his place and he gave you his righteousness. And if that is not something you find worthy of rejoicing over and of serving and glorifying him because of, you're lost. You're condemned. You're hellbound bound and deserving of wrath. And we'll receive it. Because you're depending upon your own righteousness. So let let us, whether you're a believer or not, do what? (coughs) Repent. (coughs) Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Lord, help us. We do think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. think we know best, we do find ourselves all the time wandering astray, prone to wander, Lord I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We do it all the time. We find ourselves all the time looking to our own righteousness, our own ability, our own thoughts, our own wisdom. Open our eyes to see your great, amazing, abiding mercy and love. Frankly, we can't measure up to what Matthew 5 says. We have never been able to. We never will be able to this sight of glory. So help us to look to the one who has. Always. measured up. Glorify yourself in your name, I pray. Amen.